Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Harry Houdini from the graphic novel Houdini, the Handcuff King. And joining the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Very glad to have you on. And this graphic novel is in some ways just a doorway for us to talk for a little while about Houdini. But also the graphic novel is pretty good. (laughs) This is... It's it's a solid bit of uh, storytelling, a little slice of life. Like it's not trying to do the whole spectrum of Harry Houdini's life. It's like here's basically twelve to eighteen hours of Harry Houdini's life. I think it's I think it is I I think it's more like six hours. Yeah, yeah, it is very much a slice of life story. Um, it's very short. Like I'm pretty sure it starts in the morning of that day, and I think it ends in the morning of that day. But I also, um, and like starting to talk about the trivia, I'm like, oh, you know what? They they did mention that in the in the thing, like uh, about Harry Houdini's life. It, it's one of those tricks of just cramming all these allusions to information about Houdini without taking the full time to like really, uh, you know, expound on it or go show a scene of this moment in his life or anything. And so you, uh, for for such a quick read where the, the Houdini the Handcuff King is really maybe like a 20, 25 minute read, um, uh, it's it, it does. I, I think give you a good good taste of who Houdini was. Yeah. This graphic novel was published in 2008 and it was written by Jason Lutz and with art by Nick Bertassi. And it tells a story, as I, as we've kind of said, of a day in the life of Harry Houdini as he attempts to do an escape trick, uh, diving or jumping into a river while, while handcuffed. And uh, some trivia about this graphic novel. It was produced by the Center for Cartoon Studies. Andrew, do you know much about the Center for Cartoon Studies? Um, only what I read in the back of this book, but if you want to tell me more about it or the same things that are in the back of the book, I imagine there's a little overlap started digging around uh, a bit. I was telling you this trivia after I'd lent you my copy of this graphic novel. So I was doing more of what I could find online or on their website. And, uh, they, you know, they have a Wikipedia page. Um, it's a two year institution that focuses on teaching storytelling through sequential art. Uh, and then to graduate, you must produce a senior thesis, which is, that is generally going to be a full-scale graphic novel. <laughs> so you go to school to learn how to make comics, and to graduate, you make a graphic novel. Um, and uh, it is a smaller institution, but they have some pretty significant uh, like guest faculty and guest lecturers that have come through. So it, it mentioned to Alison Bechdel, Scott McCloud, Art Spiegelman, Ed Brubaker, Chris Ware have all uh, you know, it, it included them under both visiting faculty and guest lecturers. I'm guessing most of those big names are guest lecturers that have come by. Uh, but still, that's that's quite the <laughs> the clout within uh, graphic novels uh, to have go- gone through there. Yeah, those are solid, recognizable names for not just like people who are able to produce quality work, but people who who like get the theory behind graphic novels and 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 comic books and sequential art and, and like story and character and all that sort of stuff. Yes. And um, it didn't note at one point I saw like uh, acceptance is uh, at least it said early on. I don't know if that's still the case, but it did say like acceptance of the program was more based on your critical thinking than your artistic skill. Like that, like, are you really going to take the time to think about panel layout and panel size and inclusion of, you know, how you shape images within the shape of panel, you know, that, that, that kind of, uh, element of storytelling within comic books, which is something that's unique to that medium. Uh, you know, not that there's not visual elements to 
you know, film or television, obviously there are, but the way that, you know, panel layout within the constraints of a space of page is very different. And then how you work within the shape that you've given yourself within the panels and, you know, how you build a rhythm to the story and as quick and brief as uh, the read is for uh, the handcuff King, I think they do some really interesting stuff with like, uh, you know, flipping the, uh, the sense of motion vertical instead of horizontal, uh, you know, when he dives into the river and some stuff like that, uh, that shows this kind of like hyper awareness of, the strengths of the medium and what can be done with the medium of comic books versus some other mediums of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and also last bit of trivia about that, uh, the center for cartoon studies, there's a documentary called cartoon college about the center for cartoon studies, which was filmed between 2008 and 2011. I've never seen it. I just saw it referenced it referenced in a couple of spots um, on here. And now some trivia about Harry Houdini. <laughs> Did you ever have like a Harry Houdini phase where like you became um, Harry Houdini? I did not have a significant Harry Houdini phase, but he has been present um, in 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 tangent to a couple of phases. And so like my black and white silent film phase mm-hmm. includes tangential relation to to Harry Houdini because of Buster Keaton. Right. Um, there was a, a pretty solid. um history channel documentary, I think on Harry Houdini several years ago. I mean, probably more than a decade ago. Um, and it was, it was like a seven part thing. And, and I do remember watching a few episodes of that and, and being very impressed by it. Um, he's, he's present in any Arthur Conan Doyle phase. Yes. <laughs> um, and in like any, anytime I've been listening to like spiritualist stuff, Harry Houdini's going to be part of the deal with that too. Yeah, because there's the kind of occult spiritualism phase in American life that overlaps uh, with Harry Houdini's life. And the for me, what's most fascinating about Harry Houdini and spiritualism, uh, which again, as you've noted, like you, you can't really, if you're looking into that spiritualism, you're going to come across Houdini's name because he was a great debunker of spiritualism um and like dedicated a lot of his life to proving the fraudulent nature of people claiming to communicate with the dead uh and you know manipulating people for their money where and that feels on on the one hand like this is almost hand in hand with like the kind of magician parlor trick stuff that harry houdini does but he drew a very firm line there but part of it is wanted spiritualism to be real he wanted to find the means of communicating particularly with his mother who had died uh and he he had had a very close relationship with his mother and he wanted to find a spiritualist who could really communicate uh and therefore he dedicated himself to proving everyone false that he encountered until he could be convinced that someone was real obviously he never (laughs) met anyone who convinced him uh that this was real but that that relationship is is just like just such a fascinating character moment that it's it's not driven out of like jealousy or even a desire to protect people from fraud it is a desire to find the real in the occult and never yeah. able to find it yeah and he has i mean the like i don't know if if like morality or the tactic of harry houdini like it's it's different than the typical magician or or spiritualist uh, you know the the séance you know, fraud and all that sort of stuff because Houdini was very, very upfront. And like, you get this in this, in this book, he's very, very upfront saying like, I am not using magic. I am just able, like I can pick this lock. I can get out of this situation because I have trained, I have practiced and I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm not going to let you see exactly how I do it, 
But also but I, I can do it. And I'm telling you, like, all I'm doing is picking locks. I'm telling you there is a trick and you can't figure it out because I'm smarter than you is definitely yes. part of this. And, and also like yes, that makes compels people to try and understand the trick. Whereas he, he really didn't like people who, who like leaned into the supernatural side. Um, yeah. For him, like the magic was, okay, I know the wool is being pulled over my eyes, but how is it being done? And that's the magic is like the, the how not, yes. the, this is impossible. No human can do this side of it. Yeah. And so he has like an absolute hard line. Like I can do this. You could also do this if you had mastered all the things that I mastered. Like, and like you said, I'm not going to tell you how I'm doing it. I am going to trick you, but mm -hmm. it's just a trick. Like all I'm doing is tricking you. All I'm doing is making you not see how I'm doing it. And that's even in some ways that's more impressive because he's removing like the veneer of, okay, but like maybe I just can't understand how he's doing it. He's like, I'm telling you, I'm picking the lock. I'm just not going to like, I'm going to hide it. I'm going to, you know, be tricky about how I get the pick but I'm doing it. So if you guys would just like catch me, then you'd catch me. And this is where the Arthur Conan Doyle comes in is Arthur Conan Doyle. And this is another one of those like fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a contradiction within the same person, <laughs> you know, where he created Sherlock Holmes and is associated with like this great rational mind and the idea of logic and, and uh, deduction and seeing through things and even having Sherlock Holmes, like in some cases, uh, most famously like Hound of the Baskervilles, where it's like, it seems like the only solution is a supernatural one, but Sherlock Holmes will not accept that and will dig until he solves how this isn't really supernatural. Uh, but Arthur Conan Doyle got really swept up into this, the spiritualism and he wanted uh, like Houdini to admit <laughs> that Houdini was doing supernatural things. And Houdini's like, I'm not <laughs> And he, like, there's, there's letters or communications. Like, but, at least. but like, but like you have magic. <laughs> That's how you do it. Like you're just covering it up and saying it's a trick, but like you're actually doing magic, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, famously fell for well, what was proven to be frauds in some instances by by Harry Houdini, but promoted them as like evidence of spiritualism. But he also wanted to promote Harry Houdini as evidence of this supernatural <laughs> spiritualism. And it's, it's such a weird dynamic to have <laughs> between those two. It's like this magician saying, I'm not magic. And the author of Sherlock Holmes saying, this guy's magic. <laughs> yes. Um, and like you said, uh, you, you kind of, if you have a Sherlock Holmes phase, you probably find out more about Arthur Conan Doyle. And that's a weird quirk of Arthur Conan Doyle's biography that almost never fails to get mentioned his, his obsession with spiritualism, but then also like Houdini ends up getting brought in there. Uh, and for me, I've had a couple like Houdini, like reading big thick biographies of Houdini and, and, you know, both as a kid kind of becoming fascinated. And then there was a, a book a little while ago called like, I think it was the secret life of Houdini, which I remember being a little bit of backlash because they like, they don't come out and say it, but they posit some arguments that Houdini's death, which has always been a, a I mean, it's officially like a burst appendix, uh, but they, they imply that maybe if my memory again, like it's over a decade since I read that, but they, I think they imply that there may have been a, a plot by spiritualists to kill Houdini and poison may have been involved, but they don't have any evidence for it. They just try and apply it without really saying it in the book, but to make the book more sensational, <laughs> you know, they're going mm -hmm. down uh, that path. Um, but I remember the book. The thing that I remember most about the book is uh, is like the, their breakdown of how he does a lot of his tricks. And that's one thing is like we know exactly how he did a lot of his tricks because he preserved a lot of his notes and papers yeah. and not not all of them. Yes, uh, so some have been lost. The largest collection of Harry Houdini memorabilia and props and things uh, belongs to David Copperfield. Um, and 
my understanding is he has them all basically in a in a giant Houdini warehouse in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, but you know that feels right. <laughs> that David Copperfield has those. Um, and and like some of the tricks are fundamentally it's like, oh, this is easy. Like, why didn't we? Like, why didn't we get this? Like, I remember. So I mentioned the that. Um, um, I think I called it a documentary series. It it, it was like a slightly fictionalized, like half documentary, half like this is the real story. Was that of the uh, one with Adrian Brody? Yes, that's the one. Okay. Um, I never and... thought, but I remember seeing it was out there, and like, oh, I've got to get, get you know see that. Yeah. Um, and like they were breaking down like how he was doing the tricks. Like they're telling the story, and then they're saying like, and this is one of the tricks he was doing, and they had one where he had the lock pick and everything like, so he's getting chained up in a prison. Um, cause he kept going to prisons <laughs> to do it. Like every, every jail in town. Um, and he was getting all tied up and everything. And he, he just had a fake finger. Is this the sixth that, finger? That's the one I was yeah. going to talk about. <laughs> and, and he was like, he was just hiding it, hiding that it wasn't actually connected. And he's like, and he was so confident with it. He kept switching it between his hands <laughs> as yeah. they were, as they were doing it. And, and like, so they're doing a search of, you know, they're, they're, they're doing like searching his nose, his mouth, you know, his arm, armpits, elbows, everything. And he just has six fingers and no one notices that he has six fingers on, on one hand or, or on either hand. Yeah. Intermittently. He's just like switching it between them. He's like, yeah, like nobody noticed and we're good. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, the, I mean, there's also, I think part of, what's so impressive about Houdini is so much of what he did in terms of being underwater for as long as he was or holding his breath. Yes. The, and there is like the shoulders. physical, the physical capacity there. Yes. And I, part of me wonders um, kind of like when you look at what professional athletes were in the sixties versus what professional athletes are today, what would Houdini have been capable of with modern science? Like if he'd been like LeBron James sleeping in a hyper, you know, ball chamber, you know, doing <laughs> everything to balance his body as perfectly mm-hmm. as possible on a daily basis and the nutrition, you know, uh, and, and our understanding of what exercise really should be and, and can be, um, you know, would he have been pushing these limits even farther than what he did, um, which was astounding, you know, what he was able to do, but would we be more astounded if we had someone with his drive and skill set doing what he does today? And, you know, maybe I, I don't know, like, is, is that, is Chris Angel, you know, or, or those or, kind of- or, or David Blaine. <laughs> Yeah, are, are they are they like uh, inheritors of that kind of reputation, and are they doing anything along those lines? I don't know. It just seems like Houdini was operating in a in a slightly different sphere uh, than what we have for our our uh, like magician performers today. Yeah. Um, let's see. Just trying to remember if there's anything else I wanted to touch on with uh, the the Houdini uh, trivia. Um, uh, did Did you want? I mean, I know you're a terrible a, a terrible fan of Buster Keaton. Yes. Uh, yeah, he's he's an amazing silent era star. But uh, what's the connection you're going to make here? Well, I mean, I, Houdini gave him the name. Yes. Uh, I, supposedly, famously, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe apocryphally, but still, that's how you're going to tell the story. <laughs> yes. Uh, that uh, Buster Keaton, as uh, toddlers, his parents were vaudeville stars and uh, and were in the same kind of circle of performance as as Harry Houdini. And the story is that uh, essentially uh, Buster Keaton fell down a bunch of stairs and Harry Dini picked him up and called him Buster and the name just stuck <laughs> from from right there. Um, and it, I think but, that's the kind of interconnection that you're saying. Like any, if you go into like a deep dive of, 
of like we said like arthur conan doyle or buster keaton or even i was uh just found out that houdini um kind of co-authored or gave notes to hp lovecraft and hp lovecraft wrote a story based on one of his escapes uh that was published in weird tales so even like 19 you know 20s pulp fiction (laughs) you may end up encountering harry houdini like he's just so pervasive and interconnected with so much of uh you know the entertainment world that he he just keeps popping up in this era and and i do have to say i think um Maybe to his advantage over the other people that we've mentioned, Harry Houdini has a presence and a name recognition that kind of transcends his time period. And so with Arthur Conan Doyle, you have to attach him to, you know, writing those books in that particular era. And you think about the turn of the century and like he immediately has context, whereas like Harry Houdini does not necessarily have that same context for me. Like I would not have been able to tell you um, when I was a teenager at all like any sense of okay but when did harry when did houdini, houdini live like, you just knew like, who he was i, I don't know like position. yeah it's like i don't know it could have been the 30s it could have been the 40s it could have been the 1860s like i have no idea <laughs> because he is yeah he's got that transcendent level of fame and i i don't think i said this his real name was eric weiss harry houdini was a show name inspired by a magician named harry houdin i believe uh and as we we learn in this he he later kind of regrets it because as he researched more into harry houdin's life he's like ah he was a, he was just a fraud like like he wasn't a showman he was a fraud <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and, like, and like stole tricks from other people and yeah <laughs> and all of that well and, 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 and i think he had like a code of ethics that it seems like houdin did not yeah, and I, I think it's in the, the forward to this where he says, like, the one consolation he has was that he became way more famous anyway. So oh, yes. he's like, eh, my, fame, my fame eclipses his, so I'm not going to, like, undo my name, but, like, <laughs> darn. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and uh, he lived from 1874 to 1926 to give you that window of time uh, of, of uh, you know, his lifetime. And he died uh, in... Let's see, that'd be age 52. Uh, and it, I, I remember hearing the story when I was a teenager that um, like someone asked him if he if he really was as strong as he looked or something. And 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 when Houdini said, yes, the guy punched him in the stomach and that ruptured his appendix. It turns out like, it, yes, some college students saw him backstage where he was uh, laying down because he'd broken his ankle, <laughs> but he was still performing. Like he would still go out and do his tricks <laughs> on the broken ankle, but he's laying <laughs> down. And one of them said something and you know, about his, his famous, like physicality and uh, Harry Dini's, you know, said something about, you know, I, I, you have to have a very strong core and, and the student did punch him, but it was like two full days later that he died. Uh, <laughs> and so it's it, the exact link is difficult to yeah to confirm i guess uh there uh anyway we haven't really dug into the graphic novel but before andrew's going to give us the summary of that we want to thank you for downloading this episode and we also want to thank those of you who support us on patreon if you'd like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month all supporters on patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we aren't covering as full episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss and i guess real quick we're just going to acknowledge right there I won the 2020 box office 
fantasy box office. We're not going to do a full episode breaking that down. We kind of gave updates through half of the year through our quick cast. So if you're a patron, you can go see how things were going through the quick cast. But once but we became ultimately, a parent, there it was, was no box office. Uh, we, we kind of abandoned that. And we're not quite ready to pick it up. If we get, you know, a level of vaccination happening that we know when the box office is going to really become a thing again, we may go ahead and record an episode for 2021. Possibly. But in the meantime, everyone, wash your hands, wear a mask, be be safe. Yeah. Uh, so, Andrew, do you want to give a, uh, a summary of this graphic novel? Yes. Um, and, and we should note, like, this is not a completely biographical, you know, this is, you know, precisely what happened. This is somewhat fictionalized portion it, of a day in his life. Uh, it feels like, am I right in thinking, like, Aaron Sorkin sent a couple... Of the like, like I guess his Steve Jobs was kind of like three days of Steve Jobs' life, but trying to present who this person was across these three days. And I know he's doing a, um, and uh, oh, I love Lucy. Um, behind the scenes, R- Ricky and uh, oh, that's Lucille right, Ball. Uh, but it's gonna be one week. Like, but try, but trying to capture who they are by just showing one week. And so the, there's a style of biography that does these like hyper focused looks that are supposed to reveal. Uh, you know, the larger persona of a person in doing that. And that's definitely what we have in this. But, you know, we're given enough, like, did these conversations actually happen? Who knows? But it's just enough to give us a snippet of revelation of who Houdini was through that conversation. Yeah, it's sort of like um, each of the the interactions he has or the conversations he has is symbolic of conversations he did have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like a a symbolic uh, biography. Yeah, But, but built around this real event on this real day. Yes. Uh, So early in the morning, Harry Houdini practices picking a lock on a set of handcuffs. After succeeding, he gives the pick he used to his wife, Bess, and goes on a run. At the Harvard Bridge, he speaks to the police and some of his associates about the planned escape later that morning, and he jumps into the nearly freezing water to test it out. At breakfast, um, so sometime shortly after getting out of the water breakfast it seems like the same day um he speaks to the press to to you know drum up the press and everything some of the breasts are a little less uh enamored with him than he would like them to be um then he leaves to the bridge his his wife best gets ready um to to meet him there on his way out he meets with a large man who's been hired to help him uh, it's kind of unclear exactly what that man will be doing at this point uh, and then uh, Harry Houdini heads out to the bridge, which is completely packed and crowded with spectators. It's a huge event. Um, Bess leaves the hotel and is briefly accosted by someone intent on disrupting Houdini. The large man from earlier handles that situation. He really just manhandles the accoster. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, and Bess is able to um, go get on her taxi and head to the bridge. Um, and while she's on the taxi, she prepares to hide the lockpick in her mouth. Uh, Houdini's shackled at the bridge and he prepares for his jump. He stalls for time a little bit and for some self-promotion. Bess arrives just in time. Uh, she has to show her her marriage certificate to get through the police line um, so she can go give Harry Houdini a kiss and slip him the pick at the same time. And then he jumps into the water and spends just over a minute extricating himself from his his shackles and swimming to the surface. And there is wild applause. And that's basically it. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's it's a really tidy story with some long drawn out like visual storytelling. Um, there's mm-hmm. not a ton of text or conversations. There's a handful of them, um, but it's it's pretty quick. 
Yes, and like you said, a lot of what makes I think the graphic novel work well is is um, the the visual storytelling, the art style. It it it's uh, like monochromatic, so there's not a whole lot of coloring that's going on. It's got blue tones um, throughout, and the, it, there is a simpler line style and uh, almost like caricature um, to to the art style. Yeah, it's it's a it's a thick line. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's not a hyper detailed art style, uh, but it definitely works. Uh, like I never feel like uh, there's anything wrong with the the visual storytelling that's happening. It's just a style that takes a little bit to get used to, I think. Yeah, but it's also not like a terribly unusual style to see in comic books. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, like I said, there's some real strength in particularly you said, like there's some some longer action sequences, like when he jumps into the water, um, the way the the panel shapes change and uh, we get a sense of like descent as as the body's like passing down through the panels. I think there's some really uh, clever choices that are being made by uh, Jason Lutz and Nick Bertozzi uh, in, in how they're going to convey um, you know, some of, some of the action, uh, just through the visuals there. Yeah. I was just looking at that, at that section. It's over 10 pages, um, for his escape, um, that they dedicate, which is a a lot in, in comic book time and space for it to take like a minute and 20 seconds. Um, and, and like really putting it all in and saying like, no, this is going to be 10, 11, 12 pages of visual storytelling with, with very few word balloons in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it gets into one of the unique aspects of comics is that like passage of time is so uh, different in comics than like film and television where uh, like, like storytelling takes a specific amount of time <laughs> in yeah. film and television. And yes, you can do slow-mo and like expand or contract with speeding up or, you know, do montages to convey like a rapid passage of time, but you're still like taking, you know, one minute of film time, <laughs> you know, and, and that's not going to change. Like you as a viewer are sitting there for whatever amount of time it takes for that to pass on the screen with comics. It can be a little different where uh, depending on the pacing of the panels, depending on the size, you know, how many panels there are, how much dialogue there is, it could take you, you know, uh, five seconds to consume a whole page of a comic book, or it could take you, you know, a full minute to read through everything. And maybe you stop and take in the art. And there's just a very mm-hmm. different ability to manipulate the pace of storytelling. And what happens is uh, in, in this graphic novel, like everything has been very quick paced. Uh, as you said, like he, he, we run through the morning and, and, you know, we're getting these quick conversations. Nothing is being dwelt on. Uh, you know, everything's moving at a pretty rapid clip and then when he jumps in like time slows down is what it feels like yes yeah you get a sensation of decompression um of of this this minute and i'm sure it would have taken me more than a minute to to look through everything and and like you're talking about the the pacing with comic books is so interesting and and so peculiar in some ways because it actually is 100 percent going to vary based on the person who's reading it because some people are going to turn the pages very quickly and be reading the words and not looking very detailed um, at the images. Some people are going to be dissecting the images in their mind. Some people are just more adept at, at reading comic books. I mean, like there's a skill and a pattern to reading comic books that you have to develop over time. And, and you and I read them relatively quickly because we read them regularly, but, um, but other people take longer because they have to kind of, master that pacing but then also i think you and i maybe dwell on certain pages differently than than other people yes and i i don't think that it's a sense of like superiority or anything it's just no no no. there's gonna be different engagement that happens yeah it's just the it's just the the pacing that each person has and and 
you know, I, I didn't mean it as a, a superiority, just like the oh, nature yeah. of having read comic books. You there, know, there's a learned skill there. <laughs> yeah. you know, there there's um, getting your 10,000 hours in. <laughs> yeah, you 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 learn where to look. Am I catching all the details? Good. If I want to look again, I can. And and everyone might want to look again at something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the conception of of a comic book is, like you were saying, so different from um, from TV, where it's like, okay, this is presented and it is dynamic. It is constantly moving. Whereas, like in a comic book, you have static images. Like I can stay and look at something that I think is especially intriguing for extra long. And for TV, like I have to abruptly pause you know a movie or tv to dissect it if i'm intrigued by and something. literally disrupt the narrative whereas in yeah. Marvel, it almost invites you to proceed at your own pace and that is the narrative flow that yeah you're like reading. like if i'm pausing it's like i know i'm breaking a rule but if i look at a comic book page for extra long like i it, i'm not breaking any rules acknowledging something that's different about the medium too is that um you can disrupt the narrative in a different way with comic books where like, if there's a bad panel layout, yes, um, that actually more than like a reader choosing how long they're going to look at the art or, um, you know, it, you know how they're going to take in the, the page. Are they going to read the words and then look at the image? Are they going to look at the image or the words? Like all of those feel like natural parts uh, of the relationship between a reader and the narrative. But like, if there's a bad panel layout and you don't know if you're supposed to go left to right or top to bottom, and you look at the wrong one, or even if you look at the right one, but then double check if it was the right one, like that actually breaks the narrative flow, you know, in a way that that earlier, uh, you know, like ability to take it in at your own pace doesn't. And um, like the, this graphic novel has none of those issues. Like I never felt like yeah, I was making a wrong turn on the panel layout, but I have like in things that are coming from uh, established you know, uh, publishers with or, you know, or creators. The, yeah. The, the big publishers, the big creators, I have come across those pages that have a panel layout that just pulls me completely out of the story. Cause I don't know where I'm going to go. And I end up like thinking about why they made the choice they did. And, and, and if you, there's not a good reason, it's very frustrating. <laughs> All of a sudden it's like, yeah. Oh, what, what is this? You can't stack panels on the left side that way. <laughs> you, you know? Yes. Yeah. Panel stacking can get really out of whack, but, but again, that's like, um, a disruption, from the creator and not the consumer mm-hmm. perspective, like it, the consumption of comic books is so different from consumption of television or movies um, or, or, or of books. Um, and it's, I mean, I'm just going to throw this out there. I know there's people who have never read a comic book mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of a terrible thing. Yes. And, and I think there's so much of like the dismissiveness of comic books. It comes because of the association with it as juvenile literature and, and the association just with the superhero genre, which is, uh, you know, demeaned for, for a certain mindset. Yeah. And there's a sense that, you know, reading comics isn't real reading. And I think even as soon as like you start to talk about this idea of like panel, you know, panel layout and the way that a skilled artist controls the pace uh, and guides the reader, like you, you, you immediately, I think, a skill or, or, or someone who is intellectually curious will intuit that there's something else happening in this medium that maybe they haven't encountered in other mediums. Um, and, uh, and it's one of the fascinating things for me. And I think that's one thing that even as I'm saying like this art, the art style in this one, uh, the, the, the handcuff King, like it doesn't grab me the way, uh, you know, some of the most, uh, you know, uh, really like evocative, superhero art or even something like um scotty young's uh, yeah. alice and one or uh sorry uh scotty young's um dorothy and the wizard of oz or 
um when we talked about the cursed pirate girl like those are you know non-superhero genres but the art is just so fascinating this art doesn't grab me and fascinate me that way but there's still something to be said for like the craft of how the story is being told in this even if it's not necessarily in like this rich evocative artistic style yeah i think i think you're right and and earlier we were talking about like um art is not necessarily the most important thing to the um the the center for cartoon studies like Mm -hmm the storytelling and the conceptualization and those kinds of things are, are more important. And when I'm reading this, I'm like, Oh, this is really well laid out. This like the story dynamic of this, the storytelling, the pacing and the, the choices that they're making with these panels is really good. And they're making choices with like the angles um, to, to use as like your, your camera mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and so even if I'm not blown away by, um, you know, the, the art and the lines and the color and all that sort of stuff, I mean, you're not going to be blown away by the color in this because it's just <laughs> blue tinted. Yeah. Um, but you can still look at me like this is storytelling and, and there's a craft to that. Just like there's a craft to, you know, painting or art, you know, Alex, Alex Ross paints amazing um, images of superheroes. Mm-hmm. And he's also a very gifted um, like comic book storyteller, right? He can lay out panels and he can, he can do dynamic things and everything. Um, but you don't need all of that from everybody all the time. Yeah. And uh, I think this particular graphic novel is evidence that like that well-told story with, um, you know, someone who is doing all that work of like, I can't, I can't even imagine how much, uh, you know, discussion about thumbnailing the panels and, and, you know, you talking about how long the panels are going to be and, and the, you know, the shape of each panel had to have happened between the art, the writer, and the artist, but it definitely did happen because the final product, uh, is evidence of that. Yeah. Um, we should talk about, about Houdini in this and some of the other characters that show up throughout it. Yeah, um, like I said, th- this gives you a slice of life at, at moments uh, that are meant to tell us something about Houdini. And I think we get a few interesting uh, character aspects, um, including, uh, you know, his, his controlling nature and his his uh, arrogance, uh, which are elements of who he was. But if you're doing what he's doing, you had better have a controlling nature. <laughs> you <know>? Yes. <laughs> you, you will not be do, doing what he does for long if you do not. Uh, so you have to like be a little forgiving of that. But you do get a little bit of arrogance. Of, like you, everyone should be a little more impressed with what I do <laughs> than they are. Yeah. Um, and, and like he has like a, a, a pretty intense frustration and anger towards the, the newspaper man who is challenging his fame and his notoriety and his reputation um, not so much his reputation, but like pushing against him. He's like, ah, I don't think you're as famous as, as, or, or like you shouldn't be as famous as you are. You know, they, there's pressure from that. And it, it really riles him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he, you, you definitely see some of that intensity. His buttons can be pushed. Uh, you know, he's not all cool, calm and collected, which you uh, might imagine someone who can be as calm in the face of death <laughs> as he is um like like he's inviting encounters with potential death uh, very regularly mm-hmm. and you as you would assume uh, i th- i think a version of houdini that is unflappable and he's not unflappable <laughs> you know? yeah um and but also like there's a lot of other interactions where someone says something that could be button pushing for some people and it doesn't really phase him very much or mm-hmm. or he he takes it in stride better than um that challenge to his fame and I think we also do uh, like in just very quick conversations, you get some revelations like his uh, 
uh, you know, that this isn't his given. Harry Houdini is not his given name. He, he talks about who, uh, you know, who he took the name from. We also uh, learned that he's he's Jewish, but he also doesn't care. Like the the big guy that he's hiring to kind of be a bodyguard or, yeah. or just kind of a, a fix a guy. Um, he's like, are you are you a, a man of faith? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm Catholic. He's like, that's good enough for me. Swear on it. <laughs> and, yeah. and swear on your faith that you will keep my secrets and we are good. You do not have to share my faith, which um, one point of tension that I kind of remember is that he was Jewish, but his wife was was also Catholic. I, I, I think I uh, was kind of like, and this is pulling back from old biographies that I read. I don't think that comes up uh, in the, in this graphic novel. No, not in this one. But that's part of, you know, who he was is, is um, you know, he was uh, religious. Uh, he had a, a very keen relationship with his mother that that really embedded, I think, a lot of, um, you know, religious devotion in him. But he, you know, he, he married um, a woman who was Catholic. My memory is that they weren't even buried together because of that. Like her family wouldn't let her be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Um, mm. and, and so there's, uh, both this, uh, you know, religion is part of his life, but there's also some some potential tension there. But he also is very uh, open to other other faiths, uh, you know, and, and believing that other people's faith in 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 whatever it is that they have faith in is good enough to to form a bond that he can trust. Yeah, he has he has um a, a tolerance and a inclusivity mm-hmm. um in his in his approach. Yeah, and I just love the the uh, like. Okay, well, swear on your faith, and you will be real. Like you're gonna learn my secrets, and he's very open that there are tricks and secrets. It's not uh, yeah. the hand waving comes in the performance, not in building a mystique about um, you know about what it is that he's gonna do. Yeah, like he's he's very clear. It's like I have secrets that <laughs> that are applicable to how I'm doing it, but it's not magic, right? Like I am physically doing these things. I'm not gonna show you exactly how. Because those are my secrets, yeah. but they're just secrets. Um, and you see that um, also, like with that kind of uh, another aspect that we get is it's like he had a very loving relationship with his wife, and he completely like he is literally trusting her with his life, mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of uh, the escapes that he's going to do. And in this one in particular, like he is in chains on the edge of the bridge waiting for her to show up <laughs> so she can give him the kiss. That's going to slip the pick uh, to him. Uh, we don't know what would have happened if she hadn't been able to get through the crowd. Cause fortunately yeah. she, you know, she, and- she does, but that that's a moment of, of tension, but also I think of, uh, you know, revealing uh, just how much trust he has in her. Yeah. And, and in reading the back matter, they said like, this is, the construction we did for this story, we don't know for sure whether or not she did this during or, this escape or, or any escape no, necessarily. She was, she was involved in some. Yeah. Like she, she's involved him. to some degree, but like we're doing this like for the storytelling in this case. Yeah. But I, I think we, we do know like she did slip him picks through her hair and through kisses and things like that. That I, I, um, okay. I, I seem to remember that being documented in, in some of the other books um that i've read about houdini yeah she, she's definitely part of the act mm-hmm. um in in some of these situations um but yeah like they're playing that up for the drama in the in this situation to to show like okay like things could go bad she could get interrupted i i enjoy the scene she has with the police officer and he's like look like i've had a bunch of people saying they want to get closer so i'm not going to do it unless you've got a marriage license and so she pulls out the marriage license she was that prepared. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, like they are in control of this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Anything else about Houdini that you feel like we get revealed in this uh, graphic novel or how they choose to portray this day? Um, I, I like the, um, 
like I don't know if if like jovial or positive energy he has. It, like the police are part of this, right? The police are the ones handcuffing him. That's part of the mm-hmm. the whole performance. And he has kind of a genial animosity towards them as they have like actual animosity towards him. <laughs> yes, um like in doing his stunts uh and his escapes, he would often demand that it be like official police handcuffs and the police were often you know wanting to be the ones that finally said you can't break out of these yeah uh, and um i i can't remember i would imagine just with how often he did stuff there had to have been a failure at some point where he really couldn't but i, I you know that's i i don't remember any particular details of that but in general he he showed up the police by escaping from handcuffs and escaping from jail cells <laughs> um uh you know and, and that like you said it leads to that kind of um in some ways it's like a symbiotic relationship where like the police are always hoping to be the ones that, that prevent him from escaping and, uh, and, you know, proving their, their worth and their metal and uh, Houdini needs them to provide a sense of, uh, of realness, of veracity to yeah. the, and, and like official, like the police don't want me to break out. Like mm-hmm. they are not going to be in on this. Yes. Uh, yeah. That, that these are not like the, the trick is, how is he getting out? Not, Oh, this is a breakaway chain. <laughs> you know, you don't want that to be the sense of what the trick is. Yeah. Um, and so as he's interacting with, with the, the police officers in this, like they're kind of grumpy about the fact that they're doing this mm-hmm. and he's kind of like cheerful and, and engaging with them kind of to be disarming with it and to, to help them go along with it. But I think he kind of has a, like, an attitude is like, come on, guys, like, just do the thing. Just like play along. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it, like he's putting up a front to like deal with the hassle that he's facing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the 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 sense that you get from that. And so you have like that interaction. Um, you also, yeah. I, I think another thing that comes through in this is that he has that kind of like carnival barker showman side to him kind of like you know yes. stanley uh you know with, with comic books and and uh him kind of becoming like the grandfather of comic books that's what harry houdini would have been for for uh sleight of hand and ma- magic you know like he's, he's yeah he's the father figure of this and he's beloved and well known but he's also constantly selling himself and uh his world uh to the world yeah so. they have a couple of moments where they show um, like there's posters on the wall. They show him with the press. He's like, I've, I've got to drum up publicity, right? Publicity is part of the deal. Um, and there's a point where he has um, a bunch of men write the letters of his name on their heads in on the crowd. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, Hey, like I've got to do different stuff. If it's the same old thing, then it won't be news. Yeah. <laughs> and he just got like this approach to it where he's like, I've got to keep being creative, right? If I'm not creative, then I'm going to fall behind. I'm not going to be, uh, getting the attention that I need to be sustainable with this. Right. So, so he has that, like you said, that, that, um, that carnival Barker, that, that huckster, that, um, that showmanship. And I think that's also revealing, not just, you know, a side of him that is about publicity and fame, which is part of why we know Houdini is because there was that side to him, but it also shows, um, a drive where I, I think, you know, at a certain level you could, settle into the routine and he's refusing to settle in the routine. He's trying to find mm-hmm. uh, not just tricks that are going to continue to astound, but also like you said, like, like little gimmicks, like having people write, 
Houdini on bald heads and, you know, just a, a photo op, uh, you know, for, for a newspaper that, that might get picked up and, and go around and just remind people uh, of Houdini just a little bit more and help ingrain that memory just, just a little deeper uh, into their minds. And uh, certainly I, th- I think he's become enmeshed in uh, like American pop culture lore. Like he is one of those, like just, just larger than life figures that somehow uh, it seems so many school kids at some point become aware of Houdini. <laughs> you know, this was, mm-hmm. you know, the magician. Um, well, okay. Oh, because so- you said that, I, I kind of want to ask a question. Do you remember how you became aware of Houdini? I don't like, I want to say it was probably with a conversation with our older brother, John, who's been on the podcast, uh, you know, some book he was reading or some, you know, he was telling uh, my senses. He told me, um, but I don't know, but I, I can tell you my kids um, know it from the um, ordinary people can change the world kids mm-hmm. book series by Brad Meltzer and Chris Eliopoulos that has become the uh, a PBS kid show called Xavier Riddle and Secret Museum, where every episode, like they travel through time to visit a different person who's changed the world in some way. And I, I know there's a book about Houdini, and I'm pretty sure there's an episode of that uh, cartoon series of, uh, about Houdini. Um, you know, just ensuring that <laughs> that the legend of Houdini is going to continue. Yeah. Do you um, remember when you first became aware of Houdini? I, I'm trying to remember exactly. And I like I don't have the full details of the memory, but it seems to me like it was something that got referenced in in a movie or something like someone was referred to as a Houdini yeah. or something like that. And then I asked I asked our dad, mm-hmm. like, what what does that mean? Like, I don't get that reference. And and then he gave like a brief explanation. He's like, oh, that he was a performer who would, you know, get out of handcuffs and 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 chains and stuff. I mean, knowing, knowing our father, it might not have been brief. He might have gone in well, some detail. <laughs> yeah, but like in, in my head, I'm like, yeah. I don't know, probably like four or five years old, yeah. where it's like, I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think the the idea of like uh, Houdini being an escape artist, that's kind of like Einstein being a smart person. Like it's just yeah. part of the vernacular. Like like it's our slang now. Um, you know, uh, uh, for this. And so I'm wondering if like, even like I said, my kids know it from that, but I'm wondering if like, there's, is there a reference to Houdini in a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip? Cause they've read all the Calvin and Hobbes or they've also read a lot of peanuts, you know, are there references to Houdini somewhere in, in peanuts that I, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but also it really wouldn't be surprising to come across, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a reference like that in, in old kids cartoons or current kids cartoons. Yeah. Like I absolutely assume that there's, you know, references all throughout stuff. And I, I think, um, you know, we do our games on the protagonist podcast and where it's like, okay, go, go build a team. I think Houdini is always like an option for us to pick up on, you know, going through, yeah, if we're traveling through time and you're trying to pick up someone, you know, Houdini might be one of those people that we reference for like the, these made up stories. And I know, like, I, I bet if I looked up on Wikipedia, like Houdini has to have appeared as like a fictional character in so many time travel stories and, mm-hmm. you know, books and movies at this point. Um, you know, where he's going to be encountered. I, th- I, uh, I know I've mentioned a couple times, like watching Murdoch mysteries, which is a Canadian TV show that's set there. I, I know there was an episode where Houdini appeared because it's set in like turn of the century Canada, you know, like the early 1900s. I'm pretty sure. Early I, like I bet he's in a doctor who episode at some point. Oh, he must be right. If, if he's not, then Cut like, someone what on there. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm glancing at it. Oh, I do see, uh, let's see. There's an audio play called Dr. Who, uh, Dr. Who, Harry Houdini's war. So. Okay. So there's something there was, uh, released. 
uh the tv show timeless which i believe was a time travel you know kind of gathering people from throughout <laughs> history had houdini uh at least appear I mean, once it looks like he's he's one of those real world people that is so well known so famous and and so storied that he's practically a fictional character like robin hood or king arthur oh I see that uh, there's an episode of the Ghostbusters cartoon in which the ghost of Houdini keeps escaping the Ghostbusters trap. <laughs> so, you know what? That might be one of the, one of the episodes or, or one of the references to Houdini that I first had. Because <laughs> that was, was 87. I would have been five years old if I was. I remember mm-hmm. watching that cartoon. That might be my first exposure to Harry Houdini is his ghost in, <laughs> in the Ghostbusters cartoon episode. What a great premise for an episode. That's that that's a there, nice one that's really really solid there. like like the idea of like you've got to capture harry houdini's ghost like just the sigh the deep sigh that <laughs> <laughs> must come at that point uh did you want to touch on anyone else from this graphic novel or any other uh things that you want to acknowledge about it I, I mean it really does center on on harry houdini so there's not like a a lot of deep characterization mm-hmm. Um, from anyone else or, and or the... yeah you know like the the direct characters and i assume um like the the police officers is like okay this is pretty like broad strokes yeah generic police officer generic yeah. no, uh, 1900s police officer <laughs> yeah um and so i i think he's the one that like really draws the most attention and the supporting cast is very loosely supporting mm-hmm yeah, and in some instances, it's just you know to have a conversation to throw out some of these tidbits about Houdini. Uh, but I, I mean, it, it is it is clear that he has a support team. There's someone you know in the boat in the water to to help him get in. There's someone with a okay, with a clock I don't think timing. It. Like the water is basically freezing temperatures. Like he he could yeah. get hypothermia if he's in there for a whole lot longer <laughs> than than what he ends up being in there for. Yeah, like it, it is, it is it is. I mean, I think they they checked the temperature. At 5 a.m. And it's like, yep, just above freezing, just like you want it. (laughs) Um, And yeah, yeah, like this is definitely Houdini's the star. But uh, one other thing, like I we're saying this is such a quick read. I was surprised when I was looking at the trivia, like how much I remembered was acknowledged in this very quick read, uh, you know, about the stay in life of Houdini. So there's a, you know, a, a preciseness to what dialogue they're going to include. And, and it never feels like, you know how sometimes you, you come across dialogue that feels like exposition? Yeah. They managed to provide a lot of exposition about who Harry Houdini was and never make it feel like shoehorned in. Yeah. It, it, uh, it, like I said, you know, these symbolic conversations really feel like they're doing good work, but still feeling like conversations. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I, that's everything I want to cover. Uh, so thank you for downloading this episode, listeners. And thank you, Andrew, for writing the summary and joining us in this discussion. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. And you can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disney and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash podcast and Dueling Genre also hosts a Discord group that if you search for Dueling Genre you should be able to find and uh, have uh, conversations with all the Dueling Genre hosts thank you again for listening we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story so long
Anyway, Man, that was, that was fun, a fun diversion. We have spun out from even starting our quick cast. <laughs> I mean, if you want, I can slot that in. <laughs> yeah, just just do it like do the beep at the end and then say uh, maybe even like put a little. We hit record it and forgot to start the podcast, and we just started talking about Superman. <laughs> right, I'm just gonna take that cut and I'll, I'll put that in. I'll try to remember. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll uh, introduce the quick cast now.